0: We are picking up this morning in Galatians chapter 5. We've gone through the first four chapters up to this point, and we're going to go through the first um, 12 verses of chapter 5 this morning as we move from some of the uh, declarative statements about who the Galatians are, what Christ has done for them, to uh, some of how that then works out for us as a church. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along, Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. I'll be reading it as well, but you can follow along with me. Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Heavy passage as we head into it this morning. So pray with me as we get into this portion of Galatians 5. Heavenly Father, take what we read and go through this morning and make it what you desire. By your Spirit... Show us from the word what you want us to see. Impress upon our hearts how to understand and obey these truths and keep us focused on your grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a little known fact about me is that I do not like lifting weights. True story. I'll do it, but I won't enjoy it. In fact, my thumb has been sore for like a year Because one time I was told to use a hook grip, which is where you grab the barbell in a certain way so that your hand kind of wraps around your thumb and it's supposed to give you extra strength. Well, whatever it did to me hurt my thumb. And it's gotten no better. So every day I just remember that time I used the hook grip was a mistake. But still about once or twice a week I'll find myself there at a barbell or at dumbbells and I'm always bad at it, every time. Uh, well, maybe almost always. I mean, some of you might take me literally, so when I say always, uh, almost always bad at it, it's really light and really easy, then perhaps I can lift it. Uh, I, it's not because I'm, you know, not strong. That's evident. I'm not. So that's not why I'm bad at it. I'm usually bad at it because most of the time I do it wrong. I lift it wrong. Um, I'll say, do this. Do this with your feet. Do this with your shoulders. Do this with your arms. and move like this. I'm like, What? And you watch somebody do it, and you're just like, um, I don't, I can't do whatever it is you're doing. I can't do it in that way. And this has been going on, mind you, for years. Like this, I just still haven't gotten it. So for those of you who are struggling in your sanctification, I do as well. I don't grip it the right way, or as you can see, I hurt my thumb because of it. I don't have the right shoes. Apparently, lifting shoes are a thing. Didn't know that. Um... Some people bring extra shoes when they work out. Like I'll change into my lifting shoes and I change into these shoes. and I'm just like, I have a pair of shoes. They usually have mud on them. If you're like, get the mud out of the gym. I'm like, okay. But there are a few times. There are a few times when I get to it and I do it right. And everything becomes easier. I mean, you don't really think about it. You should, but you don't really think about it. But Form matters, focus matters, like the way in which you go about something actually affects your ability to do or not do it, right? Same task, we're going to get this bar from the ground to our shoulders over our head, like, all right, got it. Is the bar a feather? If I do it wrong, everything hurts, everything My back's sore, my hands are sore, I I somehow strain my neck like doing calf raises, I have all kinds of skills. But it is true, people know what they're talking about and they'll watch me and they go, Hans, you're you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. Is that form, focus, foundation, all of those things matter when you're trying to attempt something, when you're trying to go after something. And when we are members of God's family, brought in through faith in Christ, we still need constant reminders of where to focus, what our foundation is. How do we go about this life in Christ properly so that we don't find ourselves exhausted or injured or bothered or harming ourselves or, in my case, often harming others. I'm always looking around going, is anybody around me? Because if I drop this... Christians operate from who they are in Christ. We've been seeing that. We really focused on it recently as well. Let your identity form your actions. Christians need to focus on who they are in Christ so that they know how to operate from that. Right? There's never anything, I mean, you read the New Testament, it doesn't tell you not to work. It tells you to work. It doesn't tell you not to apply effort to your faith. It tells you to apply effort to your faith. It doesn't tell you to just kind of abandon discipline. It actually tells you to pursue discipline. But sometimes when you read these things in varying degrees or in varying ways, you go, I'm not sure which ones, you know, is this cart before the horse? How is this working? And how am I supposed to live this out? Well, this morning, you're going to feel the tension as the tone of Galatians shifts a little bit from where it has been to where it's going, from chapter 4 into chapter 5. And you'll see Paul talk about work, but work that is properly done. In fact, much of chapter 5 focuses just on that, and into chapter 6, as we finish the letter, focuses on how do you know you're walking in the Spirit? How do you know what life in Christ looks like? What should be demonstrable from that? At the same time, how do you know if you're operating within the flesh? How do you know if you're doing things that don't honor the Lord? And what is the source of that? And so we get into 5 and 6 as we start to look at ways we need to operate in the grace that we have been given. So if you're there with me in Galatians chapter 5, we're going to go 1 through 12 again. You've already heard it. We seek to answer the question, how do we live from grace and not from law? Well, the first idea comes right there from verse 1. Stand firm in freedom. Right? Firm. Foundation. Stand firm in freedom. That's what you see starting in verse 1, the exhortation. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, in many Bibles, you'll see some... uh, kind of verse, this verse right here, verse one, often kind of standing as its own paragraph. If you're looking there, you might go, okay, well, it's kind of verse one as its own paragraph. you go, and if you're in like third grade by, you know, or anything, recall anything in elementary school, you go, you can't have a one sentence paragraph. That's not how it works. You need at least three sentences to make a paragraph or whatever the rule might be. There's a one sentence paragraph and it kind of comes because people are trying to figure out if Paul is trying to conclude what happened in chapter four or begin what comes in chapter five. And, uh, Lest we think that he couldn't be doing both, let me just say he's often doing both. He's transitioning one idea from another because chapter four ends with, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, right? We talked about that allegory between Hagar and Sarah, Abraham's uh, children through the flesh, children through the promise, and where are you, Galatians? You're over here. You don't live through the flesh. And so now he's saying, you have been set free for freedom. You've been set free. We're not children of the slave, but of the free. So he's going to highlight that idea and move us along to stand firm in freedom. You're set free from the life of law, life of rules, by the work of Jesus. Now, it's interesting, and I actually was reading about this as I was prepping the sermon, there are a lot of ideas that I think Paul could have used in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. But in chapter 4, doesn't he talk about adoption? That's a significant idea in chapter 4. He doesn't highlight adoption here. He could have emphasized our redemption. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. These are all things that he has said. He could have emphasized our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins. All of these things would be true. Christ did all of these things in the life of the Christian, did he not? But what does he talk about? freedom. He talks about freedom. Of all the things that he could have addressed, of all the things that Christ did, as he's talking to the Galatians about the work of Jesus, he highlights the aspect of freedom. Why? Well, it's kind of the human condition, isn't it, to go back to rules. love rules. I love rules. I make rules for myself all the time. I can tell you how I'm doing at them at any given time. You give me 10 seconds, I'll review the rules I've kept, the rules I'm not. I'm not even joking. It's a little obsessive. But we want to check off boxes and we want to be sure that we are doing the right thing in the right way and that God is happy with us. If we don't do the right things, we're in trouble. If we do the right things, we're good. In fact, even if you're here this morning and you're an atheist, you don't believe there's a God, my bet is that you still have some type of way of figuring out if you're doing things that you determine are good or you determine are bad. You are not trying to live amorally. You have some kind of compass in you. We all do, often haywire, that's trying to tell us what we should and shouldn't do. So we all do this. But at the same time, it's not uncommon to then feel crushed by the way we feel we need to operate. Like, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't live like this. I didn't smile at that person. I didn't say hi to this. I didn't speak up when I should have. I wasn't quiet when I should have been. I didn't do this. I didn't operate this way. I didn't love this person the right way. And so then all of a sudden, what starts to happen? All we do is realize how much we fall short. We feel stuck and unable to escape. And so I think that's why when you think of what's going on in Galatia with the Judaizers coming in and saying, you need these rules to live right with God. He's going, let's remember freedom. Let's remember freedom. Christ set you free so that you could live freely. He set you free so you could live freely, which is kind of funny wording. We not usually how we talk. Oh, you're free for freedom. What? You couldn't just say, I'm free? Well, he's going, you were set free from your sins, right, and your bondage to your sin to live for God, but that that's going to demonstrate itself through freedom. He's actually then, next week, 13, 14, 15, he's going to talk about not taking that freedom and kind of blowing through every single potential good rule that might exist. He's going to give you, you know, like, you got to be loving. And so don't run way over here to one side because you go, I'm free, and you just kind of uh, go a thousand miles an hour and then, you know, crash and burn. But think about this too, there's something important to realize about verse 1 that sometimes we don't think about, especially if you're new to the faith, or you aren't following the Lord right now, or you have some kind of odd view of God, or normal view of God It even could be, is this general feeling that God doesn't want you to be happy, that God isn't concerned for you to be happy. Now I know, I mean, if you've read any book, and God is not there for your, you know, you're not married for your happiness, you're married for your holiness, like we have these ways of making happiness seem like a bad thing. Being happy is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Being happy doing what you want is a bad thing. Being happy because you are the Lord's and you are pursuing Him and you're in right relationship with Him, that's a good thing. That God wants for you your freedom. So much so that Through the Son, He purchased for you your freedom. That you couldn't actually get it yourself. God does not want you to live in shame. He doesn't want you to live in guilt. He doesn't want you to live worried about whether or not you belong to Him. He wants you free. He wants you free. Freedom, though, doesn't come from doing whatever we want. It comes from surrendering to Jesus. We've seen this word throughout Galatians up to this point, and we'll continue to see it, faith. Faith in Christ is how we are free. Now, what is faith? I usually explain it like this. It kind of has three elements. Information is element number one. Understanding is element number two, and trust is element number three. These three things together make up for us the way we view faith, or what I mean? If I say to you — we'll just read to you the content of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead. If I just say that to you, that's information. I just give you information. Understanding is okay. Christ, who is Christ? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the Second Person of the Trinity. Like okay, perfect life, died for my sins. What does that mean? That I am in sin. That I have need. Uh, That His death covered the penalty. Right. That He rose from the dead. That He is alive, and He has ascended. Now we go. Okay, I I understand what I mean. Or what is being said to me. There's information, thing number one. There's understanding, thing number two, where you actually are aware of what is being told to you. And then third is trust. Now, in the book of James, he uses this line. James is the half-brother of Jesus. It took James a little bit longer to come to faith in Jesus, which makes sense because he's coming to faith in his brother, uh, which is a little odd. And so James took a little while to warm up to the idea that his brother was God. I would take a while to warm up to that idea, too. James writes this though to the audience to his audience you believe there's one god good even demons believe that information understanding information understanding those two elements together do not make biblical faith that third element of trust is what ties the pieces together Trust, then, is the removal of confidence in yourself or confidence in what you knew or confidence in your ability to save yourself and then going, God, it's you who saves. It is you who saves. You are the one. You're the one who gives life. You're the one who makes me alive in this moment. You are the one who frees. I think I've shared this illustration before. It's just so good, though. It helps me so much to get those elements where uh, if you are... Uh, there you, you're walking along a cliff you fall you grab on like in every movie you grab on to like the lone root on the cliff there's no other root, but there's one right by you you grab onto it but there's no way you're going to be able to pull yourself up so now you're just there angel shows up says do you think that i have the power to save you to, to save you and you're like i do i absolutely do do you think that i could get you out of this situation i know no, you're going no, angels aren't god no just it's an illustration do you think that I could help you with your condition, your situation? You go, I do, I do. What do, you, what do I need to do in order for that to happen? And they say, let go. That's when you go, mm, right? That's the difference between I understand what you're saying and I trust what you're saying. Understand. You go. Oh, yeah, I've, I've known about Jesus forever. I know that message. I've heard that message. That's way different than saying, He's my Savior. That's way different than saying, I know Him. And for God, as we read previously in Galatians, God's saying the same thing about us. So faith comes throughout the book because if not, you have what the Judaizers are doing is kind of recognizing point one and point two and then when we get to this idea of trust, they are like, well, you also have to trust in your work. You also have to trust in the things that you do to be sure that you're right with God. And once you do that, you've kind of ruined the trajectory that God is moving him on, or moving them on. So Paul reminds the Galatians that they're free in Jesus, and then he says this as a command, stand firm. So stand firm, right foundation, right focus, right form. That's the advice that they give to me when I'm trying to lift something. Hans, don't stand like that, you're standing wrong, you're going to hurt your back. I'm like, no, I'm not. And the next day I'm like, yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. The Galatians must stand firm in the identity that God has given to them. And they must do it with what God has provided, which is his spirit. They need to reject then the message that is being given to them, which is your work helps to save you, to make you right. You need to reject that message because then you are actually not trusting in the work of Jesus. You're trusting in an idea of the work of Jesus and then also you and the work of you. Even if, though, and this is the hard thing, our flesh, and we're going to get into the idea of the flesh in the coming weeks, our flesh, this part of us that wants to rebel against God, is always telling us to do something to secure our right standing. Because it's a kind of way of masking us and keeping us from God. So, with this in mind, stand firm and do not let yourselves succumb to the yoke of freedom. With that in mind, Paul then moves to verses two through six, where he's going to basically tell them to recognize the differences between grace and law. He's going to give them some kind of differences. So stand firm and don't let yourself go back to slavery. And then he's going to talk about some of the differences that you see between those who are free and those who are enslaved. Starting in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and when he says that, he's talking about as a kind of an idea of the whole law, that through circumcision you're kind of recognizing the law as having abiding power in your life, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So he starts with the concept of law, and he says that it is a graceless wasteland. You don't want to be there. Accepting circumcision, as he says in verse 2, stands in taking place of the law, That if you take that on, and we've said this idea multiple times, then you have to take on everything that it says, the entire law. If you do that, then there's no gain to Jesus. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Why? Because you have to keep it all. You're severed from Christ. Christ frees you from that. So if you go back to that, then everything that Christ puts at your disposal and every bit of freedom that you have, you are saying, no thanks, I got it. Now, these are, I would say, dire warnings. I think that at times we focus a lot on the salvation of the Galatians, which we will come to that idea of their assurance and their salvation toward the end here. But I want you to focus on the warnings. Paul isn't just blowing smoke. He's saying this, if you live believing the wrong things about how to be right with God then you lose out on all the benefits that come from Jesus. If you live believing the wrong things about how to be right with God then you lose out on all the benefits that come from Jesus. You are drawing from the wrong well. And this would be true for the believer and the unbeliever. And what I mean by that is this. If a believer is trying to find their identity in their work, they will find themselves only being frustrated. Not able to actually do what the Lord would have for them to do because they're caught up in another way of thinking. Now... Flip that over to the one who actually does not know the Lord and is trying to grasp at God through behavior. It's the same thing, but outside of salvation. You're still frustrated, you're still bothered, you're still harmed. And if you persist in these behaviors, that it might actually be true that you never understood the gospel of grace beforehand. So often we like to splice out, like, well, who's he talking to, and are they saved, or are they not saved, or what about this, or what about that? And again, Paul gives, he kind of leaves little uh, salvation breadcrumbs throughout Galatians as to his view. But we can't dismiss the warning. If you live by the law, you're going to die. It is joyless, it is hopeless, it is lifeless. Everything that exists for you in Christ, you are saying no to. And it is of no benefit. This is then unique for the Christian or the non-Christian. Living in a works-based mentality keeps you from Jesus. But then he brings the proper perspective in verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit which again is our power to live the way God would have us to live. For through the Spirit, by faith, there's that word again, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So two items specifically, verse 5 and then verse 6. In verse 5, we see that our righteousness, our right standing with God, is ultimately revealed in the end in the end if you look around this room and you don't have to do that because it can get awkward we start staring at each other especially if we don't know them but just some other time look around the room or you kind of do one of those like selfie pictures and you're looking behind your who's there whatever you do you look around this room here's what's true there is no external way to gauge whether or not one is with god You can't look around the room and go, okay, well, is it clothing? Is it wallet? Is it makeup or not makeup? Is it uh, jacket or not jacket? Is it jeans with holes, not jeans with holes? Boots, not boots. It's definitely boots. But if it's, you know, whatever. You can't look around the room and discern whose is the Lord's, right? You can't do it. But one thing that does happen is that when the Lord returns, all who are his are revealed. And so there's that idea. Through the Spirit, we eagerly await, we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. We look for the time that we are seen as right with God because of our faith in Christ In that moment, at his return, those who are his will be fully known. So rather than eagerly live for the approval of men and women and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and teachers and friends and family and anybody else, rather than live so that they say you're doing all right, live for the approval that comes from God. But this changes us. We have have to think about that. It changes us. It means that there will be times when my status, my life, who I am as a person is going to be demeaned by the world. And I have to say, okay, that's okay. Because what's coming is better. I'm going to let God work that out. I don't have to justify myself before others so I feel better about myself. I can let the Lord do that. And I eagerly look. So the Judaizers are there, remember, there's this group of teachers, this teacher, these teachers that are in their midst and they're teaching certain ways about how to be right with God. And they want the Galatians to like them. And they want the Galatians to desire their approval. Like a kid with a parent, like, aren't you proud of me? Aren't you? And like, of course I'm proud of you. Yeah, you're awesome. But they want the approval of the Judaizers. But what is Paul trying to say? He goes, no, no, we by the Spirit long for what's coming. We look for what's coming. We don't need to find our satisfaction in how others around us view us. We're going to let the hope of what's coming carry us. And then in verse six, we see how we're to live. This is really, I mean, just read through it. This is really the first idea, verses five and six of chapter five, the first idea of how Paul wants the Galatians to operate. Up to this point, he's kind of just been giving them, you know, this is who you are, don't forget it, this is what happens if you don't think this, this is, this is how it all looks. But now he's starting to move towards how he would like them to operate, and he wants them to love. Faith working itself through love. In other words, faith, it changes us, it frees us to Love in ways that we would not be able to otherwise. Love without pretense. Without needing love even in return. Because we know we are known by God. So faith then becomes kind of the foundation or uh, the roots that produce the right type of love. Now later, in two weeks, when we go through the fruit of the Spirit, that works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, we'll see a life rooted in Jesus is going to produce love certain looks or qualities, whereas a life rooted in ourselves is going to produce certain things. Root of the spirit, deeds to the flesh. We'll see that contrast, and how they war against one another, but Paul, as he gets into it, he goes, really what matters is not the work you do with your hands, not circumcision, uncircumcision, not law-abiding, not law-abiding. Those things don't matter, because if not from faith, then they're worthless. What matters is faith that works itself produces fruit, that's evidence, by love. Standing firm, right foundation, right form, right focus. We need to recognize the differences between two ways of thinking and living. Thinking and living by the law that that's how our life is found, is going to frustrate us. But living by grace, based upon what Jesus has done for us, even while people may mock us and laugh at us and call us enemies of God, we can hold to our joy and our hope because we know what is coming and we eagerly await it. If you read through the New Testament, specifically the instruction in the epistles, you will start to see so clearly that these authors are rooting you in what is to come even as a way of motivating present living. So rooting you in what's to come to motivate how you live right now. So look, you don't have to justify yourself before people because God is going to show you as His. So in the meantime, just work out your faith through love because you have nothing to prove having nothing to prove is incredibly freeing because I don't have to demonstrate anything to anyone any more than the other so that they might like me but at the same time through love I want to serve everyone not so that they might like me but so that they might know God And if that produces some kind of result where they don't like me, that's okay because it's not about them liking me. It's about them knowing God. So then in verses 7 through 12, as he kind of gives this idea of know the difference between grace and law, see that, see how you operate, see how you think, then he goes back to the judgment that is coming on the false teachers. Recognize, see the judgment that is coming. And he goes back to some contrast. Verse 7, you were running so well, who hindered you? From obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Like It just feels like... He's just kind of rattling off sentences, somewhat connected, but you can't really tell. Like, he's just like, and then I want you to know this. You were running well. This isn't from God. Little 11 leavens the whole lump. I wish these people would emasculate themselves. And you're just like, bro, you, like, you just keep like, shooting stuff at me. Calm down. What do you want me to know? Well, this is really what he does. He speaks both positively and negatively about what he would like to see and what he would expect. Who hindered you? He's talking about people. And then the negative aspect in verse 9, a little leaven makes bread rise. Leaven's a whole lump. So just a little bit of this type of perspective in your church could go throughout the entire congregation. All people could feel it. It could influence so many The consequence for the churches would be significant. But then in verse 10, he has this funny idea. It's not funny, but like he just goes to, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view positively. And I have confidence in the Lord, you know, dot, 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 that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Both. So he really believes that the Galatians will not take the wrong view, that they will not live a life tied to the law. And, speaking negatively, he's confident that those who are teaching falsely will be judged for it. Or even if it's just the one who brought the teaching in, that the one would be judged, because judgment is a work of God just as endurance is a work of God. I have all the confidence that you will have the right perspective. And I have all the confidence that this person will be judged who's teaching you this way, or these people will be judged. So in both of these realms, what is he actually doing? He's trusting the Lord. I have confidence in the Lord that judgment will be seen and that you'll take the right perspective. This is so important for how we counsel people. It's so important for how we just talk to people from the scriptures to say, I trust that the Lord is going to work out the right things. That I don't have to get the wording of my idea just right. That if I get it wrong, you're doomed. Because God is working out something bigger and greater. And so Paul can say with all the confidence, even with what he has seen, right? If we just kind of did a survey of the Galatians and went, well, they seem a little crazy here. They seem a little crazy here. They seem okay here, but a little crazy here. We might not come to the same conclusion Paul came to because we would be looking just with our eyes. Paul goes, I know the Lord. And I'm sure of what the Lord will do. Bearing you the right perspective. Judge those who are teaching falsely. And he even at that point transitions in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11 he talks about himself, just as a reminder of, remember the Judaizers are critiquing his message. He goes, if, I'm, if my message is being critiqued, why in the world am I being persecuted? Like, like, like if, I'm a, if I'm a law preacher, like some people might say that I am, why am I getting beat up over it? All I would be doing, I should just kind of be in line with all of history. I should just kind of be good with it. But I'm being persecuted. Because if I'm preaching law, then the offense of the cross is gone. And the Judaizers should have no beef with me. So even look at the message that I preach and what I have experienced to recognize what I believe to be true. And what is the offense of the cross? You ask yourself that question in verse 11. What's the offense of the cross? Think about the letter that we are reading. The offense of the cross. I think simply put it would be this. The idea that you cannot work for your salvation. That you have to trust in the work of Jesus. You are unable to contribute anything of value to your salvation. As the stakes in life get higher, our desire to contribute something only gets greater. Like, oh, you want a piece of candy? Yeah, sure, here you go. Like, I, we, you know, I, like it costs five cents. No big. You want me to buy your house for you? Well, let me do something. Right, like, 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 you know, as, as, the, as the offer gets bigger our need to contribute something feels larger as well but when it comes to our salvation and our standing with God there is zero that we can contribute zero that's the offense of the cross you can't do a thing to be right with God you have to completely trust in his work Completely. There's no other way about it. And then the thought of adding our works to salvation. I've had to work on my wording here in verse 12, just so you know. Makes Paul so irritated that rather than just go on with circumcision, that they would just go to full-on emasculation. I mean, if circumcision is good, then this might even be better. Just keep going. But that's his frustration with what is being said, what's being spoken, what's being preached. He's like, I just wish that these people would just go, Just, just go all the way with what you're saying, if that's really how you feel. Paul knows it means nothing. It doesn't save, and it stands for nothing. And the comment he makes right there is strong and purposeful. Because it's a ridiculous idea to think that adding work to Jesus helps. You only just have to go bigger and bolder and stronger and everything else. And it doesn't work. So Paul highlights the differences between grace and law. And underscores the difference by speaking about the judgment that is coming on the ones who are preaching to go back to the law. And it reminds us that our form and our focus matter when we're trying to live in a way that honors God. We're trying to seek a life of faith. That our perspective matters. But I wanted to just answer the question real quick at this point. What about assurance? The phrase assurance of salvation. And I just want to look at Galatians to do that. There are other places that you can go in the New Testament to talk about this concept. But I want to look at Galatians. Because on one side, you see pretty strong statements like verses 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 5 alone. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify that every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. And then look, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Those are strong statements, aren't they? Strong statements that makes you go... Can you be in for a while and then take a different perspective and then be out? It's a reasonable question to ask as you read chapter 5. You go, "Well, are you in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out? Like what, how does this work?" Sounds like you lose Jesus. But then in verse 10, we have his statement. "I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view." And as we read last week, "Brothers, you are like Isaac" Children of promise. You are. Not you could be, not if you're careful, not if you do the right thing. You are. And so in Galatians, as he's talking about the consequence of false belief, it sounds pretty drastic. But then throughout the letter, he's also talking about how he believes that God will continue to work out in them that which he has started. And that over the course of the life of the Galatians, he views this as a blip. A significant blip, but a blip. God is going to bear the right thing in you. So how do we hold these two things together? Well, first, salvation is God's work and not ours. That's important to remember. Salvation is God's work and not ours. The gospel message is God's gospel. Paul's already said that in the first two chapters of Galatians. It's his message, not our message. And it's God's gospel is held together by his power, not ours. Second, we've seen this already, and this is just from Galatians. Faith brings us into the family of God. We talked about adoption and being brought in. We are adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus. We are sons and daughters. Nowhere are we unadopted. To somehow become unadopted puts more power in the person being adopted than the one doing the adoption. Nowhere are we unadopted by God. It is His work that He has established in our hearts. And we've already seen in Galatians that God's promises are true and lasting. That He goes all the way back to Abraham and goes, Look, God's doing what God said He would do. To think that salvation could somehow be lost by the one receiving it is like thinking that somehow a child could stop becoming a child. My kids are my kids. They're always my kids. Sometimes they're my annoying kids, but they're always my kids. And then third, Paul, even in how he talks to the Galatians, has an assumption that the Galatians believed. He's operating from the assumption that they have believed. He's not talking about the Judaizers. He's happy with those guys to get judged and emasculate themselves. Go on, guys. Whatever. But when he's talking to the Galatians, a church that he helped start, he speaks about the confidence that he has in them to take no other perspective. So even though we have these statements that seem a little opposite, I think we can deduce, even from Galatians, how salvation works. And from how how Paul talks in Galatians about how salvation works. So why, then, the warning? Well, this is important. The warnings are here because they're true. Galatians 5, 2, 3, and 4 is true. If we wander away from Jesus and we stay away from Jesus, then there's the question as to whether or not we actually knew him. Because if we know, we wouldn't stay away for long, Now, long is a debatable length. It's long like a day, or like 365, or like two years. Does it mean we don't sin? No. Does it mean that we don't have bad weeks, months, or years? No. It doesn't mean that either. Human hearts can wander far and wide, but what this means is that if at one time, like the Galatians, we believe, we have faith in the work of Jesus, then we have him. Paul is observationally going, I want to charge you and warn you and encourage you to pursue God, which is what we should do for everybody. Keep following, keep serving, keep loving, keep obeying, keep abiding, keep listening to the voice of God. Don't stop. But at the same time, it's God's power that sustains So as we see in this passage, the way to be sure of where we stand in God is to believe in Christ as He's revealed Himself. That's the way to be sure. What has Christ said? What has Christ done? And we stand secure in that moment in freedom. When we stand unsure, we are trapped and we are crushed and we are frustrated because form, focus, foundation, all matter if we want to operate in the right way, and Jesus is the right way.